We're back in our series on Galatians this morning. Anyone remember Galatians? Is it ringing any bells at all? This was like the first half of the year. We worked through this book of the Bible. Uh, our, our standard approach to teaching, it sure, is to spend a good chunk of the year working through a book of the Bible. This year it's Galatians. Uh, for the first half of this year, we worked through about the first three chapters of Galatians. Even those of you who were here, I know you're thinking, what was that about again, Galatians? Who wrote that? What was that? What was the deal? Something about Judaizers, something about grace, something about Jesus, wasn't it? Vaguely. Um, yep, getting close. Good work. Uh, some of you weren't even here, and so you're like, man, this is not good at all, I'm jumping in the middle of this book. So what we'll do, because the, 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 verse, the verses that we're picking up in today in Galatians 3, they actually work as a nice refresher on where we've got to up to this point with Galatians and also chart some new ground going forward. So, we're in Galatians 3 and let's read this passage. Eleanor read it before from, must have been the King James Version, was it, Eleanor? It was an American standard, fair few these and thous and thys going on there. But let's read this uh, in Galatians 3, this passage at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, quick background on Galatians. Written by the Apostle Paul, Paul uh, of Tarsus, written about 15 years after Jesus lived, um, late AD 40s, middle of the first century. Paul's just been on a missionary tour around Turkey, wasn't called Turkey then. It was a region called Galatia. He's planted some churches. He's come back to his home base in Antioch. And a year or so later, he gets word that there have been some other Christian teachers move into these churches in Galatia that he planted and have begun to teach some new things to his converts there in, in Galatia. And, and the thing that they were teaching them, the thing that was really disturbing Paul, is that people were coming along and teaching these Christians, especially these non-Jewish Christians, that the way to be saved and the way to be a real Christian and a real member and a full participant in God's church is effectively to become Jewish. That is to, if you're a guy, to get circumcised and for everybody to observe the Jewish law with all of its Sabbath regulations, with all of its dietary laws, so only eat kosher, and all of its Jewish uh, feasts and festivals. If you do that stuff, they said, you're in. Jesus is important, but he's not enough. Paul is completely furious about this. He doesn't see it as a minor little issue, one of these things on which we can agree to disagree. For him, this strikes at the heart of the gospel. It is an affront to the gospel to suggest that you need to have Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus particular 
uh, law keeping, particular identity markers, particular, whatever it, Paul doesn't care. It's just this idea of Jesus plus is absolutely abhorrent to him. So he writes this stinging letter. It's hasty. It's fiery. It's Paul at his, at his most worked up, which is great stuff to see. He's in a rage, really, I think, and in a holy indignation. And he's writing this letter to try and convince his audience in Galatia, what are you doing being led away by this rubbish? Come back to Jesus. Come back to grace. Come back to the cross. That's all you need. That's it. That's basically the message of Galatians in, in, in a nutshell. One of the questions that comes up in view of that argument is what on earth then is the purpose of the Old Testament law? If it's not necessary anymore, if we don't need to keep it, if all we need is Jesus, what's the point? Was it just a waste of time? Was it just a, a failed experiment? Was it a mistake on God's part, did he kind of try something and then it didn't really work, so we flipped, you know, changed to Jesus, go to plan B. And this is where Paul picks up the argument in Galatians 3. He talks about this. He says, well, you know, the law is not a bad thing. He describes what its purpose is. Uh, in verse 24, there's this succinct little description of the purpose of this Old Testament law. He says, so the law was put in charge of us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Some of your translations there have the law as our tutor. Some of them might have the law as our disciplinarian. The, the word that's behind all of that is this Greek word, pedagogos, and it's where we get the English word pedagogue, which means a teacher, a teacher of young children. And, and in Paul's day, there was this role called the pedagogue, Families would have a pedagogue. They were, they were basically a slave, but they were employed by the family specifically to look after the welfare of the young child in the family. And the child would have a pedagogue from about the age of five or six until they reached adolescence and sometimes later. And this pedagogue, they, they were kind of like a glorified nanny. They weren't actually a teacher or an educator in a formal sense. That's quite important. They, they didn't have a formal role of instructing the child, but they were like a nanny. They would look after the child. They, they would fend off bad influences, keep the bad crowd away from them. They'd, they'd you know, make sure that they were well fed and looked after and clothed. And one of the roles the pedagogue has was taking the child to and from school in the morning. And this is just the way that it was. Uh, in fact, the child would often form a closer relationship with the pedagogue, even than with a mother or father sometimes, who could be more absent. There's a lovely little dialogue that Plato wrote about a pedagogue. This is three or four hundred years before Paul. But in one of Plato's dialogues, he has his character Socrates interacting with this young boy called Lysus about Lysus' pedagogue. Lysus had a, had a pedagogue in his family. And it's just an interesting example of how the pedagogue idea worked. And it shows us why Paul uses the, the metaphor of a pedagogue to talk about the Old Testament law. Why compare the law to this, this role of a pedagogue? Uh, Socrates asked Lysus, he says, do, they, do your parents let you control your own self or will they not trust you in that either? And Lysus replies, of course they do not. But someone else controls you? Yes. Lysus says, my pedagogue here, is he a slave? Why certainly, he belongs to us, he said. What a strange thing, I exclaimed. A free man controlled by a slave. But how does this pedagogue exert his control over you? By taking me to the teacher, he replied. And that's the clincher. This is the role of the pedagogue, is to take the student to the teacher. The pedagogue's not the teacher. 
he transports the child to his teacher. Now you see why Paul might be saying to us the law, the Old Testament law, it's a bit like a pedagogue because the role of the law was to take us to the teacher who is Christ. That's the whole point. The law is not bad. The Old Testament's not a mistake. It's not a failed experiment. It's good. It had its role. It had its place. But its point was always to lead us to Jesus. Its point was always to take us to Christ and to bring us to Jesus. It always looked ahead of itself. Even in the Old Testament when people didn't realise what was going on and people didn't know that Christ was coming, the purpose, God's inbuilt purpose of the law was always that it would take us to the teacher but it would lead us to Christ. And so now that Christ has come, says Paul, why do you need the law anymore? You don't need this thing. You don't need the supervision of the law because now you've got the teacher. It's like you've come of age. You've become a, an adult. You don't need a pedagogue anymore. You've got Jesus now. The real teacher has, has come. And the way Paul describes this, he says, we are, because Jesus has come, we are now justified by faith. That word justified is so important in Galatians. You might remember that from earlier in the series. Justified. And in the first instance, it means that you and I have been vindicated by God. It's this legal term that means you've heard God's verdict of not guilty spoken over your life. It means that because of Jesus, you and I have received this divine acquittal from God that we've received vindication from him, that he's looked at us and he said, not guilty because of what Jesus has done and the price that Jesus has paid. But here's the thing with Galatians. So much of what Paul wants to press on us in this book is that justification and salvation are not simply individual realities that affect my relationship with God and nobody else. But as a person is justified by faith, it starts to change who they are. It starts to change the nature of social relationships. It starts to restructure human relationships with one another. Justification is not just a personal, private, spiritual transaction that happens between you and God and affects no one else. Justification has a social dimension to it as well. And the profound reality of the gospel is that as it takes hold in human lives, it starts to open up new possibilities of relating to each other. New possibilities that cut across old dividing lines and old distinctions and start to create this new social fabric. Brand new relationships that look completely different to the way relationships look in the world, full of rank and status and hierarchy and position. Relationships that are formed around the gospel, that are formed around the cross, that are formed around the work of Christ, start to look different because of the justifying work of Jesus. And Paul gives us in this, this climactic verse in Galatians 3.28, it's really, I would say this is like the, the pinnacle of the whole book right here. He gives us this vision of what it looks like when the gospel takes hold, not just in, a, in an individual person's heart, but in a group of people, in society, among human relationships. What is this vision of life that the gospel is actually able to produce? And here it is in the most succinct way in verse 28, but there's so much here. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. That's the outworking of the gospel. And what Paul's done is he's gone to the most far-reaching distinctions in the ancient world. The three most entrenched social divisions that existed. 
And he's showing how the cross of Christ just cuts right through those layers of status and hierarchy and position. There was this ancient Jewish blessing that uh, good Jewish people would pray in the ancient world. It's called the Tosefta Berakoth. And, and, and in some circles, Jews would pray this daily. Let me read it to you. Right? See, see what you think of this as a, as a prayer. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant or a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. <laughs> this, I'm not making this up, man. Right, this is not the new prayer of Shaw Community Church. This is, not, this is not my prayer, but this is to give you an example. This is actually how it worked. This is actually how people prayed. This is actually how people thought. Because in the Jewish uh, mind, and again, this is not to be disparaged. This is just, this is the culture of the time. Jewish people really did divide the world up this way. Um, they saw, culturally, they saw the world as basically made up of two groups, Jews and everybody else, Gentiles. That's why they had one term that just covered everyone else, Gentiles. And uh, in their minds, Jews, they were the chosen people, so they had this superiority, and the rest of the, you know, the Gentile world were the, outside, the outsiders. <coughs> and it wasn't just Jews that believed slaves were inferior to free people. I mean, everybody believed that. There was the social hierarchy and of course masters were ahead of slaves. And then when it came to men and women you're dealing with a deeply, deeply patriarchal society and everybody just accepted the fact that men had a basic inherent superiority over women. This was the way the world was divided up and what the genius of what Paul is saying here is the cross of Christ starts to transform every one of these social relationships. His whole point in Galatians is that you cannot leave the cross as this thing that affects your own heart and it does nothing else. It starts to weave its way into the social fabric of our life. And if we are all one in Christ Jesus, then that should start to make a difference to some of these relationships. So let's look at them in a little bit more detail. These three categories, it's so succinct. You just gloss over this verse, but there's so much here. He starts by saying, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. And obviously this is, this is the whole issue in Galatians, is that there are these Jewish teachers who are claiming effectively that to be a Christian, you've got to come through the door of Judaism. You've got to get in through the door of of Israel and therefore Israel has this position of superiority over Gentiles and this was affecting even the church so that there was this racial dividing line effectively right down the middle of the church Jews on one side Gentiles on the other side with a clear sense of position the Jewish people are the ones we have made it we are in yes Jesus is important but you must become Jewish and Paul is just completely furious that this kind of racial segregation this kind of racial division has taken place because what the cross does is comes and levels the ground culturally, levels the ground racially, levels the ground ethnically so that there is this unity, there is this oneness and it's the opposite of what should have been happening in Galatia. These churches are creating a cultural hierarchy and Paul's saying, no, it needs to be flat we all have access to the one saviour. We're all saved into the same family. There cannot be this kind of dominating of one culture over another culture. 
And, and you and I can look at that and go, well, you know, that doesn't really relate to us because we don't have that sort of overt uh, racism today. We don't, you know, obviously we don't do that in, in the church, so what's, what, what, is, what does this have to say to us? But I wonder whether it's still possible for us to do this in really subtle ways. You know, whenever you just crack a, 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 a seemingly harmless joke that puts down another culture, puts down people of a different ethnic group, because it's funny, because it's popular, because you're in the moment, and it just seems like it'd be a bit of a laugh. What we're doing is putting up these walls that the gospel has actually torn down. And we're working against the cross of Christ. When you make just this loose comment about other ethnic groups in a disparaging way. You talk about particular patterns of behaviour, talk about immigration patterns, talk about the ways that people do things, talk about groups, lump people together, talk down uh, about people, to people of other cultures and races and ethnicities. When we do this, even in the smallest of ways, we are going against the gospel. We are acting and thinking in the opposite spirit for which Jesus died. When you harbour this attitude... And maybe you might not even realise it, but just this general attitude that you know people who are different to us ethnically, culturally, racially, somehow they're on a slightly different step. And we look down at them. Or even we just distance ourselves from them. Do you find this happening? Just culturally. And it can happen even within the church. Within the church. We just drift. Don't we? Just into our own kind of cultural groupings. Our own, because that's, and, and you're understandable, you know, that's where we're comfortable. It's not necessarily that we're trying to be exclusive, but there is a drift. And we just kind of end up with ghettos and cliques and clusters because we're most comfortable with our own people. And if we're not careful, we start to cut against the grain of what the Gospel's brought about, that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that all cultures, cultures are, are suddenly the same. Don't hear that in this verse. It's not that there is no longer any racial Distinctions. Paul's not arguing for this kind of sameness where we're all just one culture. Racial diversity is to be celebrated and affirmed. The point is that the gospel and the cross brings about a profound equality. And it should lead us in particular to raise up those who might be marginalised because of their culture. To raise up those perhaps immigrant groups that struggle away to assimilate into Kiwi culture rather than just drift away turn the other way and focus on our own little team and our own little group and our own little huddle. Shouldn't we be the ones to go to them? Isn't that where the gospel leads? Isn't that what it means to have human relationships restructured by the cross? That we lift up those who might be downtrodden culturally, racially and ethnically and we never allow ourselves to speak or think or act disparagingly against a person of another race or tribe or tongue or creed from our own. Friends in the church, that must not happen. shouldn't happen anywhere. But certainly not here. That's not the kind of community we're going to be. I know it's not the kind of community you want to be. But we are going to model Galatians 3.28. We are going to model the honouring and the celebrating and the affirming of every single ethnic group, no matter how different they might be to ours. Because we believe we're all one in Christ Jesus. So we need to check ourselves on this, check our motives, check maybe just patterns of speaking and joking, loose language, generalizations, disparaging comments. And then Paul moves to the second category, 
And he says, not only is there no Jew nor Gentile, but there's also neither slave nor free. And, you know, you've got the first century here, very class-based society. You imagine it like a ladder. Every rung is a social class, social position. And you were born into a certain rung on the ladder. You knew exactly where you were. You knew who was ahead of you. On the next rung, you knew who was below you, on the, on the rung just below. And you would spend your life seeing if you could just bump up to the next rung. You'd have to watch for the opportunity, make your move, look at seeing if you can circumvent the process somehow, but it was just incredibly structured that way. And these differences in rank and status and social strata ran through everything. I visited a, uh, a, a theatre in Caesarea in Israel and you could see the separate entrances for rich and poor built into this theatre. Different doors, completely different entranceways so that those who had means and wealth and those who didn't were kept utterly separate from one another. They were pulled apart by all the forces of society. And then in the middle of this, you have, if you, have you ever read the book of Philemon? This tiny little book in the New Testament. Go and read it this week if, you, if you've never read it because what it shows you is Paul outworking this theology in Galatians 3.28 in a real life situation. And he's got, it's like he's standing there with his hand on the shoulder of Onesimus, the runaway slave, on the one hand. This guy who had escaped his master, Philemon, and, and found Paul. And then on the other hand, Paul's got his shoulder on, on Philemon, the slave owner who wants Onesimus back and is probably going to beat him and punish him and demote him for running away. In any other circumstances, these two people would have been pulled apart by the simple forces of culture and society. And here is Paul saying to Philemon, you need to understand that Onesimus is a brother in Christ. And I want you to take him back, not just as a slave, but as a brother. And however he has wronged you, charge it to my account. People just didn't do this. People just didn't speak this way. It didn't happen, but this is the power of the cross. This is what happens when the cross of Christ begins to transform human relationships and masters and slaves can sit at the same table and share the Lord's Supper together without any pulling apart, but they are pulled back together by the radical work of Christ on the cross. And even though we may not live in such a heavily class-conscious society, there are still ways as Christians, that we can reinforce some of this stuff and work against the equality of the cross. I was talking to a pastor some time ago who, who shared with me that there, is, there were a few people in his church that were the really big givers. A handful of people, and they made up between them a massive portion of the church budget. They just gave and gave and gave. And, and he said that every year he, he would take these particular people out for dinner and he'd kind of caught them and schmooze them to make sure that the, the money, you know, the, the tap stayed on and the money kept coming. And, and to be fair, I mean, he, I think he kind of knew that this wasn't ideal, but he just confessed that he saw no other way of doing it because he just, he needed these guys on his side and, and he needed that kind of relationship building. And we've got to be so careful with stuff like that because so easily we can start to show favoritism and we can start to honour people of means, wealth, position, celebrity, and lift them up. And others, we just kind of, well, that's just the rebel. And we can start to put up the same walls that the Judaizers were putting up in a different kind of way within our own community. Friends, this should be a community where no matter what 
social class, social economic status you have, you are welcome and you are affirmed and you are valued. That whatever rank and position and status there is in the world, it's turned on its side and everyone's lifted up in the church. That's how it works. And those who don't have means and, 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 and struggle and need, it should be incumbent upon others to, to minister, not in a condescending way, not in a patronising way, but to give a hand and to help and to lift those up who are excluded economically and impoverished financially and affirm dignity among those people and be so willing and so prepared to be one, to be brothers, to be sisters, and to say whatever positions exist in the world, it's not going to affect who we are. We are a community and we are going to pull together. And it should transcend, it should work its way out, even into our own workplaces, even into who you are this week in the context of your working life. If you're an employer, shouldn't this affect the way you start to see people that you're managing, people that you are supervising, not just as commodities, but as human beings? with inherent dignity and worth, made in the image of God. Even if they don't know Christ, we can model this to them. We can model this kind of equality, an affirmation of their value as human beings, taking an interest, showing some compassion, caring when they're struggling. And if you're an employee, you've got supervisors, superiors, managers over you, doesn't this affect the way that you see them? That you don't slate them to other people? You don't treat them just as monsters? No matter how you're treated by them, you show them that dignity. You show them that grace. You show them that respect and work diligently, outworking this principle that ultimately all are one because of Christ Jesus. And even if they don't know Christ, we can still model it to them because it can be a testimony to them of what relationships look like and what human beings look like when they are transformed by the cross of Christ. There is no longer slave nor free. For all are one in Jesus Christ. And then we get to the one I know you've all been waiting for, male and female. And for some reason, this has been the biggie in the church, hasn't it? I don't know why, because it's only one of three that Paul mentions, but this is the one we go to town on. He says, there is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. And again, you, you, you are dealing here with a society which is so heavily patriarchal. Women in, in this time were treated as property, the property of their husbands. That's, that's how it was. They were property and chattels. They had no voice in social issues. They had no voice in the public square. Their testimony was worthless in court. They were just at the, at the discretion of their husbands. There are some notable exceptions, but generally women were extremely oppressed during this time. And that's, that's just the way it was. People just didn't think differently to that. It was just completely accepted. And in view of that heavily male-dominated culture, it's extraordinary when you start looking at some of the positions that women actually held in the early church. Start looking at the Jesus movement and how, and how women were involved in this community and uh, it's such a contrast. It may not seem too much of a contrast with our society today, but it certainly was back then. Romans 16 is an interesting chapter. It's a whole list of names. We never focus on it for very long because it seems like just a bunch of shout-outs that Paul's doing. You know, say hi to this guy, say hi to her, you know, greet this person. But there are some interesting mentions in Romans 16. We meet... Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team. And Priscilla's the wife, but for some reason her name's always mentioned first. This just wasn't done in ancient times. If you're mentioning a husband and wife, you'd always put the husband's names first. But consistently when Paul uses Priscilla and Aquila and when Luke uses Priscilla and Aquila in the writing of Acts, Priscilla's name comes first. 
What does it tell you? Probably that she had the lead, that she had the lead role in their ministry of teaching, mentoring, equipping and encouraging alongside Paul in Corinth and in other places, that she probably was the dominant party in that ministry. That's why her name would have appeared first. We also meet in Romans 16 this woman called Phoebe, who was a deacon in the early church. Deacons were involved in administrating and organizing and leading the church, and there's Phoebe right in there in the mix. The most interesting reference, though, I think, in Romans 16, and I think it's Romans 16:7, we meet this woman, Junia. And Junia is mentioned along with her husband, Andronicus. And Paul says about them that they are outstanding among the apostles. So here you have a woman who holds the highest possible office, the highest possible position within the early church, higher than a deacon, higher even than an elder. She's an apostle, a leader probably over several churches who would lead and would correspond and would teach with apostolic authority. And churches, I don't think churches did this stuff just to be clever or novel. It, it wasn't encouraged in ancient society. It wasn't something you did to, to, to win friends. It looked quite different. But they did it because this outworked Galatians 3.28. Even if they didn't have that particular letter in their hands, they understood something of what Paul is saying, that there is no longer male nor female. It doesn't mean, again, that we're all just the same and that, and that gender distinctions don't exist. Of course, we want to affirm masculinity and femininity as different things valuable in their own right. But what Paul is saying is this should not lead to rank and hierarchy and levels of authority and position, especially within the church. But women should be lifted up and they were in Jesus' ministry and in the early church. And sadly, this is an area where the, where the modern church seems to be so far behind. We're lagging behind the rest of society. We're not living up to the heritage that Paul gave us in Galatians 3.28. We should be the first to lift women up. We should be the first to empower and equip. And I know there are differences in ways of understanding specific gender roles within the church, but I think it's, it's bigger than even that issue because even in churches that have quite an egalitarian structure, there can still just be this attitude sometimes, I don't know whether you've picked it up, but just this kind of attitude that the real work should be left to the boys, you know? The real work of ministry. At the end of the day, that's the work of the boys. And the woman, if you could just sit in the corner and make some scones, that'd be great. Now, I've got nothing against good scones, by the way. I had one this morning. Delise Devonshire made some scones for the worship team and I partook of one and I appreciated that spiritual gift. That was blessing me. Uh, but the point is, you know, are, the Spirit has given gifts to men and women. All kinds of gifts, including gifts of leadership and teaching. And we must not neglect these gifts. And, and women, if you have felt just just through subtle ways, pushed down or marginalized or excluded from life and fellowship and full participation in the church, I'm sorry, because that's not who we want to be. We want to be a church that embodies Galatians 3.28. There is no longer male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And I know some people say, oh, but that's just a spiritual principle about salvation. It doesn't mean, you know, that, that there should be full, no restrictions and all that kind of stuff. But the whole point of Galatians, surely, is that the gospel isn't just a spiritual principle. It has to have real social impact. That's the point of the Jew-Gentile thing. Paul's never saying that's just a spiritual principle. He's saying outwork it, make it practical, live it out through equal standing of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free within the community and we come to men and women and we kind of want to do something else with it and twist it and play some, some biblical acrobatics with it. But it's right there. There is no longer male nor female. We need to raise women up 
We need to release the giftings, not pacify them, not just sort of pamper them and, and tell them you're all right, dear. You just sit there and, and just nod and smile. But whatever ways in which women have been gifted in the church, our role should be to release that and be blessed by that. I'm blessed to work beside, beside a number of women on our staff team, godly, gifted, capable, anointed women. It's a privilege. Wouldn't want a few more boys to balance up the numbers at times, but, but you know, it's fantastic. And this is the ethos of our church. We can have debates over specific gender roles and how you understand certain texts, but there is a principle here that we must affirm and give some practical expression to in the life of our church. So I think you could draw a straight line from Galatians 3.28 to William Wilberforce, the British abolitionist, who out of his Christian conviction was instrumental in overthrowing the British slave trade, outworking this principle. You could draw a straight line from Galatians 3.28 to Nelson Mandela, who out of his Christian conviction worked for the dismantling of apartheid and racial reconciliation. Neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile. You could draw a straight line from Galatians 3.28 to Kate Shepherd, New Zealand woman, who out of her Christian conviction campaign for the right for women to vote. These weren't perfect people, but these were Christian people who understood that the gospel not only creates profound internal transformation, but must lead to real social change. Or else it's not the gospel at all. And this should be supremely embodied in the church a community that practices and lives out Galatians 3.28, where we affirm and value people of all races, tribes, tongues, creeds and ethnicities, lifting them all up and celebrating that diversity, where we draw together all the social strata at the cross, no matter what socioeconomic rung of the ladder you're on here, it just doesn't matter. We're all one. The cross, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And where we honour men and women as jointly created in the image of God and release and empower the giftings given to both genders for full participation in the life and the ministry and the mission of the church. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's the cross. That's the social revolution of Jesus. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you came not just to change our hearts but to lead to the renewing of relationships Jesus, you've made possible a whole new way of looking at the way we relate to each other, the way groups relate to each other. And Father, I pray you'd make that real in the life of our church. God, let us lift up those who are downtrodden. Let us raise up those who might be different to us. Let us never be a community that has some kind of order, rank, status, position that marginalise some and lift up others. God, forgive us for times when we've, when we've done that but let us just come back again to the cross. And as we stand at the foot of the cross and just gaze at the wonder of what you've done for us there, we just find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with one another and these differences just don't matter anymore. They just fade away in view of who you are. So Lord, outwork this in our lives. Convict us. Bring to our minds if there's particular things, attitudes, actions that we're doing that need a change. In our community, Father, reshape us to become a Galatians 3.28 type of church. I thank you for this wonderful vision 
of, of human relationships changed by the cross of Christ. Make it real among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.